We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. I'm Ben. I lead the elder team here. So glad you're here. If this is your first time, I'd love to meet you um, afterwards. So we're going to be in Romans 12, verse 9 through chapter 13, verse 10. So this is a little bit of a different um, scripture where it, you get this, it's called a paranesis, which is a fun word you can throw around at parties, uh, maybe tonight at the, uh, the game party. We can't call it what it actually is, we don't we'll get sued, it's, that word is copyrighted. But the, the, the evening, you can throw this word around, you know, how many times you can use the word paranesis in conversation? Um, but what that is, just a style of writing of like quick fire statements that are sort of loosely connected, like a list. And here Paul actually doesn't even use complete sentences. And it's uh, interesting, it's, if you're reading this along with us, um, you might have hit this section and wondered what the theme is. There is a loose theme. Uh, but the way I'm going to approach it is I'm going to, instead of normally I, it's like a menu, I take one thing and we focus on it during the message. Uh, this is more like a family-style smorgasbord dinner where we throw a lump of things on the table and you just get what you can grab, okay? Um, so we'll have a list here. But I do think there is a loose theme, which is in verse 9, which is let your love be genuine or not hypocritical. Um, have you ever wondered how in the world are we going to put the world back together again? If you remember back to chapter 1 of Romans, Paul describes the world as having fallen apart, sort of disintegrated into madness, licentious madness, and everyone out for themselves, for their own gain, and the whole thing has fallen apart. And it begs the question, doesn't it, how do we put it back together again? Or, or do we just accept that the world is terrible and has fallen apart and we should just build an ark, Right? What do we do? And I would, without being too over the top and melodramatic, I would suggest to you that the answer is in our text this morning. The answer of how to put the world back together is right here in front of us. Um, and thanks to Matt, yet once again, my entire sermon has been preached before I can preach it. Um, I don't know what's going on around here. If someone's looking in on my computer every week, it's getting a little weird, but Matt just gave away the whole thing. Um, but it's good because God's confirming himself, right? Um, so I think the first sentence is the theme. Uh, that's verse 9. And then we'll read through this list together. And I'm going to go through them kind of trying to keep in, in, in the spirit of the text kind of quick fire. And you just wait, see where the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, okay, in which one of these things, all right? So let's read this together. Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love one another with brotherly or mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So love must be without hypocrisy. It must be real. I think this is an interesting statement. Because I think everyone in the world probably agrees with the idea of we should love each other. I don't think that's controversial. In the church or outside of the church. I mean, everybody says this. And everybody says, yeah, love, man. We should just love people, man. I love you, you love me, can't we all get along, right? This is, ever, no one disagrees with it. What is, so then why all these statements following that statement? Why didn't Paul just move on to the next thing? I think it's because all human beings trend towards or lean towards hypocrisy. We, it's easy to say a thing, isn't it? It's easy to say, I love you, man. It's easy. But what definition of love are you using when you say that word what do you mean by i love you or you should love me or we should all love each other and that's why you get this list because paul is trying to get get to your definition and he's putting meat on the bones and as you go through that list it gets narrower and narrower and harder and harder and i think that's the point so let's look at this list First, we have be revulsed by what is evil or abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Make no mistake, you live in a world that has gotten this exactly reversed. You notice that? It's, we, we now love what is evil and abhor or hate or are disgusted by what is good. We have flipped it on its head. That's what Satan does. It's his primary mode of operation in the world is to cause the world our instincts, our consciences to not just be seared, but to be reversed, to celebrate what is evil and love what is, or not love or hate what is good. So everything that God clearly marks out of sin and rebellion against him, the world you live in celebrates it as good. They feel genuinely righteous about doing decidedly unrighteous things before God. Here's the nugget of it. We are not free to love what we want to. That's what he's saying. We're not free to love whatever we desire, is another way to put it. You can't do whatever you want. (laughs) No one can. We must love what God loves and be sickened by what God loathes. If God calls it good, we hold on to it, even if the world calls it evil. And if God calls something evil, we are repulsed by it instead of loving it. What God hates, we hate. What God loves, we love. Be devoted to one another with familial affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So he is clearly speaking of the church in Rome here. Your devotion to one another should be like the way a healthy family is devoted to one another above all other concerns. This should be so passionate that it is like a competition to see who can honor the other more highly. So where the world says, compete, competition makes us better. God says, Compete for the honor of the other. If you're going to compete over something, 
If you're going to be shouldering and butting your way in against someone else, against your neighbor, let it be a competition to see if you can bless your neighbor more than he blesses you. That's what love does. Where you're more passionate about the honor of others than you are about being honored. He says, don't be lazy in zeal, but be enthusiastic in spirit and serve the Lord. This one's hard for me. I'll just, this is where I kind of hit the speed bump. I'm not enthusiastic about anything. It's just not in my nature. I often say, you know, I just don't like things. <laughs> They're like, what things? Just things. Like, I don't like doing things. I don't like things. I'm just sort of, that's just my nature. And it's not good. I mean, it's sort of funny to say it out loud, but it's not good. He says, don't be lazy in your zeal or your excitement or your passion, but instead be enthusiastic in spirit and serve the Lord. So don't be the one that others must always drag into service. Don't make people ask you four times for help. My wife's looking at me like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to be one of those, did you hear the sermon this morning, Ben? <laughs> oh, I should have left this one out, just skipped over it. Nobody would have noticed. Y'all have just been fine. Don't be a wet blanket on the enthusiasm of others, but instead be the encourager, the energizer, the catalyst for others to serve. Don't be the one always in need of encouragement, but instead be the one that is always encouraging. It doesn't mean you can never need encouragement. It just means if you look at the tone of your life, which are you? Are you the one everybody's trying to drag in to help, drag in to caring, drag into being enthusiastic and having faith for what you're doing? Or are you the one who's standing there going, yay, go, cheerleader? That's who you're supposed to be. That's part of loving one another. Number four, rejoice in hope. Remain firm in affliction. Be stubbornly devoted to prayer. So we have hope because God is sovereign and good. The present affliction will end. No matter what your affliction is right now, it will end. There's hope. And Christ intercedes for us right now. We do not suffer as those without hope. Our joy and hope is buttressed by stubborn prayer, because we know where our help comes from. The people who have hope are always the people who are praying, because they're nowhere to go to get hope. Their hope is not in things will be better tomorrow. Their hope is in Christ, who is interceding for them, and who guarantees that one day, someday, well, I don't know when, it's going to end, and I'll be with him in glory. That's where my hope sits. So I can rejoice in hope, even in the affliction, because I'm stubbornly devoted to prayer. See that? There's no encouragement like someone who prayerfully rejoices in hope in the middle of affliction. So aspire to be that person. Number five, share in the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. Saints refers to all believers. We, that's a sermon by itself, just the word. All believers are saints. St. Heather, St. Alan, <laughs> you're all saints. What a beautiful thing that is. 
What if we started referring to each other that way? I mean, outsiders might think we're weird, and it would be a little weird, but it'd be kind of cool, right? We share each other's burdens like a family. This is a matter of practical, physical needs, not only the emotional kinds of burdens. I mean, if you want to come, you know, trauma dump on each other, that's, that's great. Go for it. But this is also physical needs, like you need help getting your car running, I'll come help you. You need help cleaning your house before a small group, I'll come help you. Uh, you need help with meals because you're sick, I'll make a meal for you. It's practical things where you're pursuing it all the time, sharing in the needs of the saints. Hospitality here is talking about your home, by the way. I know, I'm meddling now. Your home is not your castle. It's not the place you go and hide away from the world. Your home is a way station for lost saints. Your home, your space, your food, your life should be open and not closed. Your home is not your castle. It's there for other people to come in and experience the welcome of God. When they come in and experience that, there's just nothing like it. There's not, nothing like it at all. And this is the burden of every believer. It's to share in that pursuit. Number six, bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The power of this statement is intense because considering the kind of persecution that was beginning at the time of the writing of this letter and was less than a decade away in the future of the writing of this letter where Christians were going to begin to get martyred and killed in Rome where he wrote this letter to. So for him to say in the middle of social persecution and the coming bloody persecution to say not only do I want, do I, does love not reply to persecution with silence, but you are actually called to bless them. Not only, so he doesn't just say, don't curse them. Just keep your mouth shut. That's just the baseline. He says, bless them. Pronounce blessing on the one who's trying to destroy you. That's hardcore. The natural human reaction will be to respond to persecution with a curse, isn't it? Somebody slaps you, you feel justified in slapping them back. That's justice. The scales are balanced. You slapped me, so you owe me a debt of justice. I get to repay it by slapping you back. He says, don't do that. You say, well, okay, I think I can handle that. People have done that. Non-Christians do that all the time. I'll just be a humble person. But he says, go a step further. And when the person slaps you, you pronounce a blessing on them. If you lose your job because of your Christian beliefs, what will you say on the internet about it? To put it in a modern context. If someone does a terrible thing to you or says a mean thing to you on the internet, what will your response be? You should decide now before you're in that situation, by the way. <laughs> will you just be quiet? Or will you say, you know, it was a great experience working for that company. I'm, I hate that I'm not there anymore, but I just want to say, if, you know, thanks to my boss who was great to me and what a great company to work for. What will come out of you in that moment? 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So don't be self-absorbed. Only rejoicing of your own blessing and weeping of your own sorrows. Everybody's got things to rejoice over and everything's got, everybody's got things to weep over. He doesn't say it's okay to cry, which it is, when things are hard. He says rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with other people that have wonderful things going on in their lives and weep with them. And he doesn't qualify it with if you also feel good about it, then rejoice. If you've got things, good things to rejoice over, and they do, he says, no, no, no. The thing you rejoice over is over the triumphs of other people. And the things you weep over are the sorrows of other people. So we grow in empathy for others, the people that you claim to love. We have empathy for. Number eight, have the same mind toward one another. Do not think haughty thoughts. But be carried away with humble concerns. Do not be wise in your own eyes. This is real closely connected to what we were talking about last week. He basically says, stop competing with one another. Trying to gain some social advantage over each other. Instead, be preoccupied with the concerns of people that are below you on the social ladder. So it's not just the poor. It's the people who are on the outside who are socially disconnected, socially not seen as being as honorable as you, bring them up with you. That's what you should be concerned about. Number nine, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Everyone argues about what that means, the heaping burning coals. I just think it means bring conviction on them. That the Holy Spirit would convict them of their behavior. But look at all the things he lists that you should do to force someone that's trying to kill you. If he's hungry, go feed him. Make him dinner. You got a crazy neighbor who's trying to, he's constantly calling the HOA on you. Make him a basket of goodies. Bring it over there. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Bless and do not curse. What you're doing is you're saying, it's not my, justice is not in my hand, it's in the hand of God. He says, make room for the wrath of God. That's what that means. So justice is holy. If you've been done wrong, that's true. It's not like you should act like it's no big deal. You, you, justice needs to be satisfied, but it's just not your job. It's not your job at all. Your job is to bless and let God deal. God will settle the score, whatever needs to be settled. He's going to settle it. And I don't know when he's going to do it or how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. It's not my job to worry about it. My job is to bless. Revenge is a selfish act that harms the greater good for your own satisfaction. I don't think we've really had to live out these verses in any kind of real sense, at least not in the sense that they lived it out here. I mean, quite literally, people were going to kill them. It was this huge schism in the church after these 
you know, centuries of persecution when people who denied Christ and became part of the problem wanted to come back into the church. And you had a whole new denomination springing up over disagreements about what kind of hoops you had to make people jump through who had denied Christ instead of being tortured and killed. And now they're out there and things have gotten better. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if you were one of the people that got tortured and did not curse the name of Christ and you survived it. And then these jokers who had crumbled at the first, as soon as the branding iron came out of the fire, they're like, ah, I'm not a Christian. And they survived and lived great. And now it's over and they want to come back in the church. What do you do with that? Well, we just need a new denomination now. <laughs> you guys go to your own church. You're not going to be in my church. We've been faithful. He says, bless your enemies. And you see how our petty disagreements can seem so petty compared to something like that. But the principle remains in every relationship you have. When someone does you wrong, ignores you, slights you, says something that you don't like, hurts your feelings, what comes out of you? Is it, I bless you in the name of Jesus? What can I do for you? What can I do? Can I make you dinner tonight? How about I buy you dinner? I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I bless you. 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 For every curse, I bless. For every curse, I bless. He says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So Paul is writing to people who are in a culture filled with evil things. It's no different now than it was then. In some ways, it was worse. You're surrounded by evil things. And this brings us to the question I started with. And these are people treating the church with evil intent. This is not theory. It's where they're living. Vengeful Vengeful responses, cursing your enemies, only being concerned with yourself, creates fertile soil where evil can grow. It is the ground in which evil things grow. Division, strife, schism, selfishness, self-focused, lack of love. It's where evil grows and prospers. Loving your enemies, being humble, thoughtful, hospitable, etc. creates fertile ground for the gospel to grow. So we conquer evil by loving others with genuine actions, not just loudly declaring it and then backing away. Instead, we enter into and we do things, loving things for other people. Look at chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and he gives us some examples, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So you see right there, he says, love is what puts the world back together. Love is something that you and I owe to each other in Christ. It is an obligation. It is not a thing that you do because you feel the good vibes for someone else because they're nice 
or you get along, or their personality meshes well with yours, or their values mesh well with yours, or their actions mesh well with yours, or you have something in common, like you like the same sports, you like the same music, you like the same whatever, we have this thing in common, and I'm compelled internally, emotionally to love you, and so I'll love you. That is not what he's talking about. That does not put the world back together. It's a wonderful thing, but what puts the world back together is loving your enemies. Loving people that will not love you back. Loving people that you don't like. Loving people that get on your nerves, that don't mesh well with you, that don't believe what you believe, that don't say the things you say. They're disagreeable, hard-headed, stubborn, unpleasant people. They do exist somewhere out there. No one in this room. I'm making no direct eye contact with anyone as I say those words. And whoever it is you're thinking of right now, that's who you need to love. But don't love them right after the service. It'll be super obvious. Why are you being so nice to me all of a sudden? <laughs> be careful. This is what puts the world back together. And this kind of love is what heals Romans 1 and brings the world together. Now, the trick is this is a love, I mean, anybody can love, but no one can love like Jesus loves. He's the only one that can love the way he loves. And so the world doesn't need just people loving each other with no grounding. Because sometimes love means you say hard things. Sometimes love means you disagree, but you love each other anyway. No one can love the way Jesus loves. So we can't just all hold hands like in a 1980s Coca-Cola commercial, run to the top of a hill with wildflowers and sing a song together and everything's fine. I'm speaking to the Gen Xers out there. Can, can I get an amen? Any Gen Xers? I think I might be the only Gen Xer in the room who remembers that commercial. But you get the point. That's not what he's calling for. He's calling for a hardcore, sacrificial, painful kind of love that costs you every time you do it. It costs you your pride. It costs you your safety and comfort. It costs you your living room, your cleanliness, having everything the way you want it, having, just having the friends that make you feel better about yourself. It costs you a lot. And that's how Jesus loves. So the question is, how do you define what the good Christian life looks like? What kind of religious observances do you include in that list of characteristics? Like if someone were to say, hey, I, I, I'm thinking about being a Christian. What do, what do you guys do? Like, what does that look like? Like what kind of, I don't mean just like I believe a thing to be true. I, like, what do you do? What would you list? Would it be how you, what meetings you attend, what books you read, what you wear, what you say, how you talk, the things you know about God, speaking in a certain way? But I would say Jesus has a simpler definition. He has a simpler definition of what the external characteristics of a Christian are. And Paul just gave them to us. 
Christians love the way Jesus loves. Christians love to the point of death. Christians love to the point of taking ownership and responsibility for messes that they did not start. Jesus stepped into the world being perfect and holy and righteous, and he took responsibility literally on his back for the sin of the world, and he never sinned. And he said, this is what love looks like. This is how I want you to love. I want you to crawl up on a cross and die for the people that hate you. And this is what we're called to do. If you can imagine going into the arena in Rome something like eight or nine years after this and having a, an iron seat that's been sitting in a fire for hours and has turned red and you're being forced to sit in it with no clothes by people that hate you and are doing this simply because you believe and follow Jesus and that your answer to that would be blessing to cry out to God on their behalf. Those are the stories we read about following these words. This kind of love is only available by the Spirit of Christ who wants to fill us with his love right now. So he says, love one another and not just a shallow form of love that receives more than it gives. It's a sacrificial love that gives more than it receives. And it is a competition. Thanks for loving me. I'm going to try to outdo you. You bought me dinner. I'm buying you two dinners. You bought me two dinners. I don't know. I'm going to buy you an expensive steak. I'm going to do something. I'm going to outdo you. I'm going to honor more than I receive it. And that becomes your challenge in life. Your neighbor is nice to you, cuts your grass for you, and now you're going to cut his twice. I'm going, to, I'm going to receive the gift, but I'm going to give it back twice over. This is how we remain a church. Why don't we stand? I want you to just think about, in that list, maybe one or two things that kind of pricked your heart, felt maybe a little challenging in your current life situation. Um. Maybe there's somebody you really want to curse. <laughs> Maybe there's someone who's rejoicing that you don't feel like rejoicing with. Maybe there's maybe you've become like me, slothful in your zeal, less than enthusiastic at times, just about things. <laughs> Whatever that is, just remember it. And we're going to bring it before God right now and ask the Holy Spirit that the love of Christ would flow through us, acknowledging that my love is insufficient. In this area, my love is just not quite deep enough. It's not quite Christ-like enough. And I need the Holy Spirit to come and give me the love of Christ in this area and be specific with God. I'm going to pray, but I just want to ask you to bring that, whatever those things are before him right now as we pray. Lord, we thank you for clarity. You didn't just tell us to love one another. You 
we're real specific about what that means, what that looks like, and how that's expressed in the world around us. And we confess that in many ways our love is insufficient. It falls short of the target you set for us. So we confess that to you right now. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit right now, you would fill us with your love for other people, especially our enemies, especially those that we find hard to tolerate. That we would love each other in the church and we would love our neighbor. That we would love them more than we love ourselves. God, for those of us who need to open our homes, God, I pray that you would put that conviction on our hearts. God, for those of us who need to bless those that persecute us, help them. God, for those who uh, just aren't rejoicing with others or aren't weeping with others or just focused on their own things, God, that you would help them to see beyond themselves. God, every one of these commands you've given us in Romans 12, help us to be faithful to them. God, we confess we need you to do this. So God, don't let us wiggle out from under the conviction of your spirit this morning. But instead, build us up. Build us up in these areas. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.